I told you I quit. It won't last. Hi, sweetheart. Look how I see Sato's look, okay? He ain't following your program. Mark around preaching. Oh, fuck, preaching. You make stuff up. It has to be believable. It's called suspension of disbelief. A detective. He falls for the wrong woman. What happens? She kills him. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon, we decide on the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes a month. Uh, the first of which was two weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Or three weeks ago. Yeah, I get, it's hard to keep track. Yeah, and <laughs> so many episodes now. And the second it's of which there. was last week. Uh, so there's now two episodes backlogged uh, in the catalog for you guys when you subscribe. Speaking of which, since we've launched those two episodes, we actually have got some new patrons to thank yes. uh, to give them their on-air shout-out. So we want to give a huge shout-out to Steven Carlson, uh, who was big on the show from the very, very beginning, gave us all kinds of recommendations. Now I feel like we're going to do one of his recommendations. So thanks so much, Stephen. Uh, Alex Keys and AJ Albright. So thanks to all three of you guys thank for checking guys. out uh, the show. Uh, next week, we got a special episode, bonus episode, just for you guys. Uh, so look forward to that. Uh, that's going to be your plug for the week. Oh, we shit, got. other than iTunes. Go to iTunes and rate <laughs> us. Assholes. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, uh, but if you guys are listening to it on iTunes, we would hugely appreciate it. Uh, if you would go in there and give us a good old rating and review, all really of those. helps the show really helps us climb the rank show on iTunes and get some more listeners, which will help us get more content to you guys. Those are your plugs. That's it for that. <laughs> we promise. Yep. Uh, so free listeners, two weeks ago would have been the last time you guys heard from us. And what were we talking? We talked. We had uh, Chris Stuckman on, right? Yes. Yo Jimbo and a fistful of dollars. Yeah. So that was a fun one. If you haven't heard Lots that one, go check that one out. Uh, but for, uh, patrons, you guys would have last heard us a week ago where we talked, uh, Rambo, First Blood. Oh, yeah. And we compared it with Rolling, Rolling Thunder. Thunder, uh, which was a hell of a double feature. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Two insanely violent, uh, Vietnam era action films. Uh, yeah. they were pretty wild. So if you haven't heard that one, I'd recommend going back and checking that one. But this week, we have another special guest for you guys coming on. Danny, Danny Bose. How you doing, Danny? I'm uh, doing great, guys. It's uh, it's good to be here among uh, fellow connoisseurs of sleaze. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and from what we understand, you brought a particularly uh, sleazy feature for us this oh, yeah. week. Uh, oh, yeah. What <laughs> films have you brought with us, or brought with you, sorry, and why have you paired them together? Well, uh, the double feature that I'm bringing uh, this week is uh, Basic Instinct, 1992, directed by Paul Verhoeven, starring Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone and a host of 
astoundingly talented character actors. And the second film, 1989's Black Rain, directed by Ridley Scott, also starring Michael Douglas, who is the link between these movies in that in both of them, he's playing a cop named Nick in both movies. Uh, That's uh, true. Oh, I didn't, yeah. I didn't his, 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 his last name is Curran in Basic Instinct. His last name is Conklin in uh, Black Rain. But he is referred to dozens of times as Nick by uh, by everybody. And that and, was something and, that – And Nicky <laughs> yeah. in particular. Oh, yeah. And, and Nicky at, 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 at intimate moments. Um, <laughs> and, and then there's a, a, a slightly uh, – like less prominent, but you know, equally important, uh, I would say, link between the two is that they're both um, uh, the cinematographer of both films was Jan de Bont, who would later go on Genius. to direct uh, the all timer speed. And, you know, and, and, and then he kind of had the Stephen Daldry career trajectory where, you know, like he had the good first one and then fell off a cliff, you know, yeah. or did Daldry have a Jan de Bont? Yeah, and, and he shot, this, he shot this, this Die Hard too, right? He's like an excellent cinematographer. Oh, yeah. Jan, Jan de was an elite cinematographer before. I mean, he was so good at being a cinematographer, they had to let him direct. And then, you know, it didn't work out so great. But, you know. <laughs> what no did he do after of- Speed? <laughs> he did Speed too. Fucking. <laughs> <laughs> cruise control. <laughs> he did Speed too. <laughs> um, like, he, he made a whole bunch of bullshit after, oh. after Speed 1. Yeah. Um... But yeah, as a cinematographer, he was top notch. Um, and there's this like lovely kind of dreamy, uh, like kind of tactile smokiness kind of that he brings to uh, both Basic Instinct and Black Rain. Yeah, he should be only like two or three years apart. So yeah, they were like part of a very distinct and uh, period of. Michael Douglas movies, which also include, you know, like in this period and like along this line, you know, Fatal Attraction is another notable mm-hmm. uh, entry in this Michael Douglas period, as was Disclosure. Um, and this this two, wouldn't have been too far after Wall Street either. No, and it was coming right after Wall Street. Yeah. So um, it's kind which, of just like uh, King of the Trashy Men here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and we'll definitely and, get into you know, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I do think that this period is inaugurated with Wall Street, where all of a sudden Michael Douglas is playing like the embodiment of a certain type of white male American sleaze. Um, he's like just very in, in Basic Instinct and Black Rain in particular. Like it's where the clearest uh, parallels in this are, are apparent. Like he's always at, at, at any moment in both of these films he is at most uh, you know a second away from just uh, explosions of full-on rage uh, <laughs> yes. just like just roiling with demons and all kinds of shit that he's trying to barely keep repressed yeah, uh, sure. on the it, edge throughout both films yeah every, every scene <laughs> Absolutely. And frequently, you know, explodes. You know, he does not he does not do a very good job of keeping it together in either. (laughs) He's always blowing up at people and like literally waving his dick around and, you know, just like and figuratively waving his dick around. It's like um, when. Yeah, because when Josh asked me about uh, coming on the podcast and you know said it's called Sleezoids, I was like and Aiden, you give a double feature. I was like. 
well, we got to do Mikey D, man. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> that's just, you know, th- this has been like a personal hobby horse of mine for, you know, going back. Like I saw Basic Instinct in the theater opening weekend, you know, God and I had been looking fucking forward to it for like months beforehand. I was like, oh, that is going to be dope. And it did not disappoint. Never has. It's, you know, it's aged like you know a, a fine wine yeah. would, uh, <laughs> would you know aspire to age this well awesome uh, man awesome all right well we i think are gonna get into it what do you say basic instinct basic instinct let's do this basic instinct you're in over your head she seduces people <laughs> All right, so we are talking Basic Instincts, the 1992 film directed by Paul Verhoeven. Uh, it's kind of a neo noir, I guess, an erotic thriller would be the definition. But Definitely I, I mean, erotic. <laughs> but I, but I don't I don't know that Verhoeven is a filmmaker that fits cleanly into any sort of boxes in this particular case. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a pretty wild film about a detective played by Michael Douglas uh, named Nick Curran, uh, who takes over an investigation involving a deeply brutal serial killer. Uh, <laughs> In which, uh, according to the uh, film's description, a beautiful and seductive woman could be involved. That woman played by uh, Sharon Stone in a very iconic performance. Uh, and so rewatching cold, so it, a, yeah, a lot, uh, a lot more going on in that performance than I think even the cultural references mm-hmm. uh, seem to give it credit for. But I'm going to go ahead and say it right off the bat. This is one of my favorite openings to a film Uh Ever, uh, it, <laughs> yeah. it is balls to the wall. It's so brutal. Uh, it is absolutely insane, and it starts out with just this image of like uh, you know what looks like a fractured mirror with um, motions happening in it, and you kind of question at the moment, even having not known exactly what was going to happen you could probably guess that it's something sexual but also it seems really aggressive uh and and scattered you know it's it's yeah whatever's going on within the relationship being shown it's not exactly straightforward something is wild is going down yeah uh and the fractures and the the way that it slices and the way that it's shade it, it it kind of matches the lighting and shadows of the actual framing of the mirror on the top and mm. we pan down and we see the, you know, that there's some sex going on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some, some crazy sex. Yeah. Some very heightened and theatrical sex. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's definitely right. Yeah. <laughs> and the way it's shot too is extremely explicit. I mean, we're talking showcase after midnight. Explicit, yeah. You know what I mean? Like this, this, this stuff is, oh, yeah. is crazy, especially for an, I mean, this is how they open the movie, you know, setting the tone. Yeah. And it's a, it's a very beautiful room. Uh, and there is a very beautiful blonde woman, uh, kind of faceless in this particular scene, yeah. intentionally, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, because we don't want to know exactly who it is who's going to stab this dude viciously with an ice pick in the <laughs> chest, in the neck, the through face. the face. That was the most, oh man, yeah. that shot through the face. And Verhoeven doesn't wow. flinch. No. Uh, I'll give him that one. <laughs> Not at all. Well, it was initially presented when it uh, when it came out in theaters um, in a more 
Uh, a, a there was a much less explicit version of this opening sequence. Oh, that's like the, disappointing. Because the, <laughs> the last bit at the end, where like you see the ice pick go through the guy's eye and like half his face and shit, and yeah, then yeah. Um, like that was that was cut in order to get an R rating initially, I think. Although when it then came out on home video, they were just like, "Well, we don't have to worry about getting an R rating anymore. Let's put the good shit back in," you know. And so then that Everyone and do that. Uh, <laughs> a bunch of uh, a, a bunch of like much. Uh, less um, kind of uh, elusive uh, sex, like much more direct sexual acts, or, or like just odd frames here and there were like put back in. Um, but yeah, I mean, like the the director's cut version of it, I uh, mean, is you know, like it, it's it, it's it's like here we are, you know, it's just like it's very much in your face, it's very confrontational, mm-hmm. um, and so over the top that it sets. You know, it sets the tone perfectly for what's about to ensue because what goes the the rest of the movie, I mean, it's it's so gloriously, sublimely heightened, like everything about it is just pushed to ludicrous extremes. And it is exquisitely wonderful. I mean, it's like it's so wrong. It's right. It comes so far (laughs) beyond being wrong. That it comes back to being divinely right. I mean, it's it's just a glorious fucking two hours of movie. No, I don't. There's I don't think there's any movie we've we've covered that is as actually the definition of sleazy as this one is. Yeah. Uh, hey, look, man, you asked sleazy, for sleazy. You know, I like, gave. Sleazy, oh, dude, no, we we <laughs> asked for it. We're happy <laughs> you brought it, but but. But oh man, like this, yeah. this way it wears it on its sleeve the whole film. It's it's unabashed. It's just not ashamed of itself at all. Yeah, the, and the the movie, you know, despite the it, obviously it wants to. I mean, I think it's questioning the idea that uh, of this eroticism itself. Sure, sure. Uh, but because because it's also very like clammy and 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 sweaty mm-hmm. uh, in ways yeah. that are you know yeah, it's not clean no. by any means. No, oh, hell no. <laughs> uh, it. it it very much reminded me of the kind of movie that De Palma would love. I'm actually almost, I don't know if De Palma's ever said anything about this film, if he's seen it. Uh, I imagine he has. It's not really, it's not the kind of thing he would make. No. And it's, I actually think that, uh, like, I could very easily see Brian De Palma having a bit of either professional jealousy or personal distaste for this movie because of, you know, the the similarities which would be apparent to, you know, like an, an outside observer, but also the differences between them are noticeable enough and crucial enough that I think that there's a distinct possibility that Brian De Palma really doesn't like this movie if he ever Possibly, saw it. Yeah. Or I, I, I could definitely or, see some or he could just too. easily be like, fuck, I wish I could have made this movie. Yeah. Because when you mentioned Brian De Palma, it was interesting. The thing that I was going to point out was that, um, it, it, like, if there's you know, there's, it's not what you would normally think of as a Hitchcockian type movie, but it is, it, it, it you know, it's clearly made by somebody who has watched, you know, Vertigo, uh, and, and a number of other uh, Hitchcock films, you know, like intimately knows them. Um, and the thing that I was going to say is that, you know, how like when film critics who don't do drugs, uh, claim <laughs> that some wild movie is like oh my god it's like vertigo on acid you know and they get the drug <laughs> reference it's a very highly specific drug analogy that i thought of for this which is that it's like somebody watched vertigo on poppers and angel dust you know because it has to be like 
a particularly like fucking grimy drug combination. Like, I mean, you got to be really serious about taking fucking drugs to take like that combination of drugs. And then watching like Vertigo on that yields, like I'm going to write basic instinct. <laughs> you know? And like, and you know, not, not that I'm, you know, intimately familiar with screenwriter Joe Asterhouse's personal habits, but I mean, he is somebody who has spent uh, considerable stretches of his life in states of non sobriety. Uh, shall we say? <laughs> yeah. And, no, and, and uh, your, your vertigo comparison is definitely apt. Cause this is about a, a detective in his own way who, it's about sexual obsession. Yeah, you know, yeah. A, a dude who who feels like he's lost something and he's trying to fill it with just an insatiable uh, desire. Yeah. And I just say his desires, and I mean both of them in their own way. I think Hitchcock obviously wrestled with the idea that its protagonist was impure as well. But Verhoeven's version of impure is, uh, l- let's just say it's a little <laughs> it's bit more, more impure. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, like, yeah, Hitch- Hitchcock characters fill that void with, like, you know, Freud, and Verhoeven characters fill that void with whiskey and cocaine, you know? Yeah. And and I think that that's where the most interesting thing about Basic Instinct actually getting into, let's get into some of the story elements here. Sure. Um, I think that this movie really does, and the way it worked best for me was kind of like a precursor to what would we would eventually see in things like Gone Girl, which is a film that feels inspired by this. And, uh, Very much so. And another film which goes back to... Hitchcock as well, uh, most recently Phantom Thread, mm, and where, yeah. where you see kind of two mm-hmm. sort of sick, uh, sociopathic to psychopathic people kind that of find love who, find, <laughs> who honestly kind of finds whether it's love or not. It's, yeah, just, yeah. it's something That's debatable there, but it's sure. something it's it's to me, this movie was at its most powerful when there was moments where Michael Douglas, who, you know, is obviously a bit of a scummy dude. He's not a full out serial killer like she is, but there are multiple times where he is very willing to let it slide that she is a brutal serial killer. And he, and the first thing that we see is him coming into the film and watching her crime scene and like, and, and taking a look at the carnage. Yeah. So he knows immediately what she's capable, what of. she is capable <laughs> of. And the rest of the movie is almost him trying to find a way to get around that. Yeah. He's to just be trying with to her. justify it in any possible way, shape or form. Cause the, se- of, yeah. the, se- the second she comes up with a very lazy, like excuse <laughs> and he's just like, wow, that's so accurate. Like I'm going to, I'm going to shape my, the, my entire case around this. Like either he's a really shitty detective or his urges are controlling him in this particular sense and not just urges that she is, you know, projecting onto him or making him half. These are just things inherent in him. Mm-hmm. And he seems to have found like sort of like a perfect right. partner in her, um, which is to me where this movie gets very fascinating uh, when we reach the ending. But we won't get to that quite just yet. Yeah, right. uh, right. I- it's not that he's a bad cop so much as it is just that his his dick overwhelms <laughs> all other, you know, influences mm-hmm. in his perception of, of the world. Cause like the, the rational part of his brain and the cop part of his brain is like, yeah, this is, you know, she, she's not the most innocent person I've ever met. And yeah, it, <laughs> it kind of looks bad, you know, is what his brain is telling him. And his dick is like, Whoa, hold on, hold on, Fuck hold of on. the Let's, century. That's what he says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what he says. 
yeah, his, his, his dick is like, let's not, let's not, you know, put the cart before the horse here, man. You know, let's let's, let's fuck some more, and you know, we'll, we'll have a better, a clearer, a clearer look at things. <laughs> you know, after, after we fuck a couple more times, yeah, uh, gonna clear you know, his head. And then, yeah, and then over the course of the movie, you know, you're pointing out because I mean, the thing, it's pretty clear, especially considering the sequel, which is a terrible piece of shit, but that the sequel <laughs> makes it explicitly textual that she is a serial murderer and that she has killed all the people that she's accused of being uh, a killing. But if you, if you sort of, you know, kind of, I mean, I guess take like a, a, a deliberately naive look at the events of the, the original film, um, it is a bit ambiguous about, whether she actually did it or whether she's this Machiavellian mastermind that set up everything and framed all, all of these other people. Like it is explicitly ambiguous, although, you know, I mean, you can put two and two together and it's like, you know, Occam's razor dictates that, you know, she did it because it's just <laughs> the simplest solution. Um, Oh God! There was a reason why I started babbling about this shit, and now I totally fucking forgot what it was. Oh, that's all good, man. Oh no, no, no! Here, here goes, here goes. I just remember what it was. Yeah. Okay. So what she did was, in order to preserve the purity of Michael Douglas's like sense of her as being just like, nah, she's just my girlfriend, and she's interesting. She, you know, she's not boring. Um, <laughs> she systematically removes all of the people in his life who appeal to his rational impulses. <laughs> you know, she she gets rid of uh, Jean Triplehorn, uh, Michael Douglas's uh, therapist and ex-girlfriend, and who he bangs a couple times, a couple times, once or twice over the course of the movie. You know, it's an on-again, off-again uh, relationship. She's, the, she's constantly just being like, you know, doubt her. And then her there's uh, his, uh, you know, down-to-earth, you know, hard bitten realist, you know, veteran partner, George Zunza, um, who, you know, dispenses all kinds of, you know, like, you know, salt to the earth and pretentious dandruff. You know, it's like, she got that magna cum laude pussy that done fried up your brain. You know, bon mots of that sort, you know. Which, to be fair, is probably the most rational thing that anybody says in the movie. Oh, yeah. No, he's that good friend that's trying to get you out of the crazy, man. He realizes what you're dating and he's like, no, you got to go the other way, man. You got to go the other way. And what's amazing is... All of the reasonable people get killed in this movie. That's the thing. All of the reasonable people are just fucking dead by the end of it. And it's just these sexual psychopaths fucking to high heaven with an ice pick under the bed yeah yeah, you know? yeah, and, yeah. And, what's, and what's awesome is that verhoven like telegraphs all of this in his in his filmmaking especially in the very iconic uh in, interrogation scene when that when that kicks in because oh, right. uh right. because move. yeah well because she, she he, he, ma- he <laughs> makes all capital letters <laughs> <leg> move, <yeah. laughs> yes exactly he he makes very clear in the sort of like uh off kilter zooms and cuts and and stepping into focus uh, things that he's he's pulling in the interrogation room to show that she's in control and that all of these yeah. people who might otherwise be able to you know do something about it are left totally paralyzed. Yeah, they're just blubbering idiots by, during by, the interrogation. By her presence, yeah. yeah. And all she's doing is oh, just yeah. lighting up a cigarette, you know, talking yeah. softly, you know, the, the leg move. Yeah. Uh, but she's got she holds all the power. There, there's not a moment where. Almost in this entire movie, really, where she doesn't control the scene. No, I, I loved and I, I shared the shot on Twitter, but I love that shot of him oh, before yeah. he goes in the interrogation room. Absolutely. And he's he's looking back and talking to a guy in the doorway and 
in the background is the television where she's looking into the camera lens. So she right looking lo- lo- looking too. through the TV, yeah. looking into our camera lens yeah. that we're seeing. That was the moment I wrote down when I said yeah. like that was her the the definition of her like control. Is a, that that is a power move. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a powerful oh, woman. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and the key, you know, conflict in the whole movie is, you know, control versus chaos. You know, it's like, utter, you know, complete rigid order versus chaos. And she represents, you know, control and order. She's, you know, self-possessed to an almost preternatural degree. And all of these men no are one just da- like falling all over themselves and fucking just dropping dead left and right over the course of the movie are all you know, completely, you know, governed by their, you know, titular basic instincts. Um, that, that, you know, she's the one rational actor, the one self-aware, uh, you know, actor in the whole thing capable of rationally, you know, like ordering and manipulating everybody else. And they do point out that, you know, it is very significant that she's a student of and a practitioner of psychology, and all of the like, you know, just less intelligent, less self-aware people in the movie are kind of helpless to her because she's just like in terms of, you know, having control over other, you know, events and other people. She's just on another level from everybody else in the movie. Right. For sure. and, I mean, she even takes yeah. uh, the control when it comes to the lie detector test. She suggests <laughs> the lie oh, detector yeah. test. You know, she's <laughs> she's fully aware of her capabilities and that that she could, you know, get away with even something like that. So, I mean, and I love that line. The one guy just be like, you can fool me. You cannot fool the machine. And it's like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. basic instinct was actually one of the crucial uh, kind of, you know, influencing sort of documents in the culture that told people how fucking easy it is to beat a lie detector test if you really <laughs> want to do it, you know, because it measures, you know, variations in your, you know, heart rate and, you know, like, and all those various physical indicators. Whereas if you go into the test, like fully in possession, in control of yourself and enough, you know, you know, just like in control that you don't, allow yourself to, you know, like, you know, get, get thrown and experience those variations. You just keep it steady. You pass the, you, you pass the thing. That's why polygraphs aren't admissible evidence, mm. you know, but in this world, in this fictional world, you know, they, they still had this like ardent belief in the supremacy of polygraph machines right. and that, you know, and that through her, you know, diabolical, you know, which is why, you know, like in real terms, like her intelligence as it's presented in the movie, it's not like like genuine diabolical genius. It's like a sort of limited intellect's version of diabolical genius. Because I mean, and not to be too insulting about Joe Esterhaus when he wrote this movie, but I mean, he was like you know a very you know. Uh, uh, kind of you know like lusty saturnine being who is like writing the thing like high off his ass with (laughs) a hard on yeah you know (laughs) so it's like you know so her diabolical intelligence is diabolically intelligent by that baseline yeah but i mean but within but the, the 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 logic of the movie is entirely internally consistent Mm -hmm. the construction of the narrative and the way that it goes is you know is immaculate oh and and what stone actually does with the character makes a huge difference too oh yeah 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 i mean she definitely elevates it because when you know there are those there's that famous you know just like litany 
of actresses who turned the role down. And after you see what Sharon Stone did with the role, you go down that list, which is basically like literally every actress of an appropriate age in Hollywood at the time. You go down that list and there is not one person on that list who you can imagine doing something as just larger than life and, you know, just like robustly alive and, you know, fascinating as what she does with the role. It's one of, you know, and I'm not, you know, you know, like I realize how hyperbolic this sounds. It's one of the great screen performances. It's definitely one of the like most compelling and just, you know, like ferocious screen performances. But I mean, it is like a hall of fame screen performance. Yeah. It's, it's she just, not only nails it, but elevates it, which is, you know, you know, doesn't grow on trees. I mean, no, it's, it's, a the, it's the only thing you can do. <laughs> well, this was her breaking yeah. role, too, wasn't it? Wasn't this uh, like her first major breakthrough role? Could have been. I'm not sure. Danny would know. She, she'd been in a few things before then in a few like featured roles. She was in a couple um, like uh, they made a couple like Alan Quartermain movies in the eighties where she was Richard Chamberlain's blonde sidekick. She was in a movie called irreconcilable differences that she got some good notices for. She was Steven Seagal's wife and above the law in what you might imagine was not as fully realized, uh, a, a role as, as basic instinct. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, what she had done most recently before this, which is why Verhoeven reached out to her, was she'd been very good in Total Recall as oh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's okay. right. wife, yeah. who turns out is, you know, like working for the bad guys. Um, and she's fucking great in that. And it was basically like when Verhoeven was just burning through every single actress in Hollywood, you know, like Gina Davis and Julia Roberts are like, uh, no, dude, I pass. Um, <laughs> Verhoeven was just getting frustrated and he's like, fuck, who do I know who can do this? Oh, let me ask Sharon, you know, and she was like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. And he was like, no, come on, you must do this. It'll be great film. It'll be fucking great film. We, 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 make, we make classic. And she's like, all right, as long as the classic, check's clear. Classic Dutchman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I don't want to make films that are boring. I want to make films that are interesting that make people want to fuck. You know? <laughs> successful man you really got to oh, trust yeah. your director if you're going to get involved in a project such as this i mean i can imagine people <laughs> reading the script yeah. and just like what do you're i have like, to do yeah, like, like that is crazy please tell me this writer is in rehab and it's like uh, yeah. well, <laughs> no well, and, he's and, right here at the table with me sorry no <laughs> and, and, and verhoeven does it right by just being in complete lockstep like with the perversities of this film like only a dude who who is like no this is a genuinely sexy and terrifying situation and i'm gonna film it like it's both uh it's the only way that this film's gonna work uh it it actually because we were talking about how people like to compare this to de palma it actually reminds me a lot more of something that cronenberg would Mm. be interested in now cronenberg wouldn't have made this script but verhoeven seems on that kind of wavelength where just he's he's in tune with the sort of both sexual and violent energy that's at the core of this, um, that's at the core of both of these characters, just one has figured out actually how to channel it and be successful with it, while the other is very much struggling. Michael Douglas's character, I'm pretty sure, was was he under investigation or something like that? Is that something that's happening in it? Or oh, yeah, he's Rain Internal now? Affairs is up his ass. That's another parallel with the other movie. We're yeah, okay, I wasn't sure if I was uh, yeah. thinking Black Rain, but yeah, yeah, Internal Affairs is after him because he, he killed some people while 
possibly high on cocaine or something like that. Right, yeah. Yeah, uh, ex- exactly that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, just doing good cop work, you know? Yeah, you know, <laughs> just, just your, your, your average Joe. Like, <laughs> yeah, your average. exactly. Hey, look, when coffee's not enough, you got to go for something a little stronger, you know? Yeah, man. Yeah. You know, yeah. you and it'll kick. cut down on the donut intake because it's, uh, you know, it's an appetite suppressant. So, yep. you know, it's like <laughs> cocaine is probably, you know, better for cops. You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Michael Douglas in this, he's very interesting. Um, I think he I mean, I guess he the only reason he's sympathetic in this is just because obviously it's very clear to, I think, the audience that even if Sharon Stone hasn't done it. She knows something. She's done something. Oh, yeah. She, she, she doesn't yeah. try to hide oh, yeah, it for yeah. a second. If she hasn't done this, she's scene. done some shit. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so for that reason alone, you're kind of just like, okay, well, I guess I'm I'm with I'm with Michael Douglas on this. But then Michael Douglas kind of tests you. <laughs> yeah. Over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, and, I mean, the thing that I also just about – what Michael Douglas kind of presents and represents in this and something about like the kind of overall, you know, kind of color palette that DeBont and Verhoeven are working with here. It kind of brings to mind, like, what if, if, you know, if the, you know, timelines, you know, like lined up with this, like, what if, you know, like Hieronymus Bosch painted a psychology textbook like specifically like a chapter on sexual dysfunction in a psychology <laughs> textbook. And Michael Douglas is like that perfect, you know, kind of like, you know, like guy in a Bosch painting, you know, like with a fucking forked dick, you know, <laughs> just, try, just trying to fuck everything, you know. Um, it, it, it's it, it's like it's, it's this fascinating kind of difficult at times to look at, but still really compelling, just kind of glimpse into just pure – like sexually dysfunctional id just being projected on a film screen. Mm-hmm. I mean, he yeah. does his great job of just channeling that and not trying to, you know, kind of like rein it in or anything like that. He just like, he, you know, goes there and stays there and kind of, you know, like lets the audience kind of just sort of behold this really kind of, you know, fascinatingly grotesque sight. Grotesque mm. uh, there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like, it's Gunyol, Grand Gunyol sexuality, you know, and, mm. you know, I mean, this is the one thing when you were mentioning earlier, like, you know, comparisons with uh, De Palma and Cronenberg. I mean, this is one instance where I would, you know, just you know, politely take issue with that and say that Basic Instinct set up Paul Verhoeven as somebody with no peers in portraying this kind of psychology, this kind of like twisted sexuality. I mean that Verhoeven kind of stands alone on an Island with this kind of singular, uh, portrayal of all, all of this shit. Just like an, I un, mean, like an unhinged, uh, yeah. The ways in which it is unhinged and the degree to which it is unhinged is something that like, I just, nobody's ever i mean the closest that i've ever seen is when you mentioned gone girl you know the bit when yeah, yeah the bit when dougie hasser gets murked in gone girl <laughs> you know it, it like it was like and i think i remember ignati vishnevetsky pointing this out too it's like oh, it's a paul verhoeven movie and i was like oh yeah ignati hell yeah baby Good yeah call. You know? yeah <laughs> 
Yeah, there's there there's definitely something to the way because Ver, Verhoeven's so interesting because I've watched quite a few of his films and I, you know, when when people talk like you know auteur status, they they kind of a lot of the time just mean like a distinctive visual style. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas whereas here, I mean, I, obviously people who use it correctly use it for a lot more, but <laughs> I, I feel like most time that it's noticeable, people see like a, a filmography of someone where you can watch a movie, you can see a scene and see another scene, and you're like, oh, that's the same dude. With mm-hmm. Verhoeven, there's there is something like raw and and impulsive but still in in control that is i i can't even describe it and it's it's totally different a lot of the time for me from film to film because next week actually we're going to be talking robocop RoboCop. uh oh yeah and man like uh, watching basic instinct and then following it with robocop just like a week later yeah i was i was like Holy same same, <laughs> same guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess. But there's you know, it's it's totally different interests. Um, but you know, there there clearly is something there. There is a connective tissue of a total oh, yeah. psycho. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, yeah, and that's exactly right. You're hitting on the the exact thing. The signature, the uh, you know, what makes Verhoeven Verhoeven is often intangible. It's tonal. It's mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, it's like it's that ineffable, you know, just like just feverish, like insane tone that he's able to apply to different kinds of subject matter. And I mean, because the only really tangible thing that you can point to with his movies, because I mean, he works with, you know, different DPs and different, you know, like just f- forms, really. It's like it's basically those those great steady cam shots. Mm, yes. But, you know, that aren't like huge features, though. They're kind of like a minor feature. There's like one or two of them per movie. They're fucking great, but it's they don't pervade the entire film. But really, the thing is, the the linkage is that just a duck fucking insanity of all of those movies, you know, just like just the, there's the roiling with violence and sex and just like just, you know, complete lack of sanity in that you that unique kind of way i mean he's you know that that you know his period it, and it's really it's you know like most prevalent in his hollywood period you know basically stretching from what you know, like robocop to starship troopers kind of because i mean you know he, the, yeah you know the hollow man fucking sucks i mean sorry. <laughs> um but like but you know like robocop total recall basic instinct showgirls starship troopers you know like that, it's an insane all, but, run <laughs> yeah it's it's a tremendous run but it's like that's his most unified run and it's really when you talk about like you know Paul Verhoeven in, you know, those like auteurist terms and everything like that. Those are the films that you're really, you know, grouping together. And he, you know, there's something about his sensibility just to bring Mikey D back into it. You know, there's something about Michael Douglas's ability and willingness to just kind of like push it out on, you know, to the edge of the envelope and like kind of go out to the limits of his own uh, sanity and self-control that blends very well with Verhoeven's just natural affinity for insanity. The combination of those two things makes for just like this operatically heightened, you know, kind of like, you know, skateboard off the fucking cliff, you know, with, you know, all of this, you know, like violent and sexual urges and stuff. I mean, and it's, you know, it makes basic instinct. Although there's some like horrifying shit in it, it makes it a compulsively rewatchable movie because just that like 
that that adrenaline rush, the heightenedness of it. Oh is, yeah, it's so it, thrilling. It's, it's it's almost unique in the annals of cinema. I mean, there's really for like a certain mood, there just is nothing like this movie. Out no, and, and and it's a movie that again feels almost high on its own thrills at the same time, which oh, it, which yeah, is yeah, which yeah. is a whole different kind of thrill when you're yeah. watching it. Um, but yeah, no, I think you nailed it uh, on the head there, Danny. And we're going to enter the reductive rating round on this one, which uh, will tell you, Danny, is the round where we remove all the nuance, remove all the words that we gave to the film we were just talking about, and we give it a number between one and five. We reduce it to that. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to uh, participate if you don't want to. We okay. kind of just do it for our own uh, rating and and ranking for our for our little list of things that we've covered. Uh, for me, Basic Instinct is going to be a pretty easy high four. Uh, I really do love this film. Um, I think it's one of the stronger um, Verhoeven ones that I've seen. I'm going to be honest, and I feel b- like a bad twi- uh, film Twitter member <laughs> for not having uh, actually given this a rewatch. I haven't seen Showgirls in a long time. Uh, I still need to see that. Uh, I- Showgirls is one of those ones that you you know you cannot watch it if you're not in the mood for it. It's 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 one of those definitely needs to sync with the mood for it kind of things. Because, um, I mean, I rewatched it. The first time I saw it, I fucking hated it. I thought it was terrible. Um, and I subsequently came back around a little bit on it. <laughs> okay. Um, Interesting, because a lot of the film Twitter corner stuff that I've read is that Showgirls is like top tier. If you haven't seen it, you're not a Verhoeven oh, fan. Yeah, and, I was yeah, like, yeah. and I was like, well, I mean, I've seen RoboCop. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, I think that that's that's the typical, and not to you know step on anybody's toes and disrespect anybody with this, but I mean it is kind of like you know it's taking that stand that Showgirls is the greatest Verhoeven film is sort of like it's a stand that you take for the act of taking that stand and also <laughs> for the practice in defending it because you will get people objecting to it. It's sort of it's almost like critical calisthenics kind of like when you take when you have a take like that because you know you have to defend it and you get practice defending it and so it's like it's good practice and it may very well be a sincerely held take but that is still true because like when you take like wild out there takes like that you know i mean it's like you do have to defend them because you can't just claim it's self-evident that showgirls is (laughs) verhoeven's best film because it's fucking not self-evident okay well well what what i'm gonna do is i'm 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 gonna watch showgirls that all day but yeah i'm gonna watch showgirls and then i'm gonna pick up adam Naiman's book because if you wrote a whole book about why you love showgirls you're probably convinced enough about why he loves yeah one of the one of the uh Critic colleagues that I, I know, Adam Naiman, he he wrote a whole book on why Showgirls uh, doesn't suck. Is yeah, I believe nice. the title I mean, of that I, book. I, 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 I have so bad that I haven't read it yet because I mean I'm in a fantasy basketball league with Adam. I love him. He's a great guy. He's a wonderful critic, and I feel really bad that I haven't read that book because <laughs> I imagine that like he he if, if anybody can make the case for it, he he's the one who can. Awesome. All right, Jamie, for you. Uh, I'm also going to give it a four out of five. It's a high one, uh, as well. It's a strong four out of five. Um, I was just, uh, hypnotized by Sharon Stone's performance, uh, for one that really, uh, blew me away. Uh, seeing Michael Douglas in these two films, I've never really, uh, watched too many Michael Douglas films. So Mm. I didn't, I had no idea he had this, uh, reputation of kind of this king of 
powerful, trashy men, you know. <laughs> uh, so I was, I really enjoyed, uh, really enjoyed his uh, performance as well. Uh, and, and was this your first Fairhoven? Uh, I think it might have been because RoboCop's probably his most popular, right? Among them, of his Hollywood stuff, yeah, I'd say, I think, probably. I think this is was that, that first, in Total Recall uh, and Starship oh, you know Troopers, T- I guess. You know what? Total Recall would have been my, my first uh, Verhoeven film, All right. um, which I also really enjoy. But uh, yeah, so I'm going give to give it a four out of five. This one really surprised me. I was pretty blown away. All right. And Danny? <laughs> I gave it a 69. Damn. <laughs> Nailed nice. it. Nice. <laughs> 69. <laughs> Yeah, out of five. <laughs> By the way, shoots right yeah. up to the top. Yeah. Right up to the yeah. top. Best movie of all time. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, yeah. Now, I'll just conclude by saying that seeing this opening weekend when I was 13 was a transcended experience. I bet it was. How I did you get into imagine. the theater, man? Yeah. <laughs> like, there's no way that they'd be like, oh, they'd have a lockdown on this movie. No, um, I was I was accompanied by somebody who was over the age of 17. Oh, okay. Uh, I th- see, I, yeah, I didn't yeah. even think that that movie would be, they'd be just like, no, you're 13, you're not seeing this film. But Well, it was also, depending <laughs> on the movie theater, back in the early 90s, you could get into R-rated movies. They would not right, let you right. into X or NC-17, but like there are people at ticket counters in movie theaters back then did not give a shit (laughs) especially in new york city maybe in like more culturally conservative parts of the united states you'd have trouble with that but not in not in brooklyn they just didn't give a fuck the person (laughs) was there because you know it's like all right you want to see some tits get in it get some yeah. life experience <laughs> yeah you're gonna learn a lot kid <laughs> you come out it's like have you been experienced well i have <laughs> oh man all right well that's gonna be it for basic instinct next we're gonna be moving on to black rain oh yeah so let's get into it i'm excited black rain I am the solution to your problems. Well, it's not over yet. Here I am, Nick! You can get him, boss. You and me. Michael Douglas, Black Rain. All right. So we are talking Black Rain, the 1989 film directed by Ridley Scott, also shot by Jan de Bont, uh, and starring Michael Douglas. Uh, this film is about two New York City cops who find themselves involved in a gang war between the Yakuza and I'm I'm guessing the 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 Italians. The, yeah, I was. That's sure. what I'm going to take a guess at. Um, sort of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what ends up happening is that they arrest uh, a Yakuza member who committed some sort of assassination in New York. In the middle um, of broad daylight. And for some reason, <laughs> their chosen two just regular cops yeah, are going to escort him yeah, all was, the way to Japan because they're going to extradite him. We got him. nobody else to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we, we we need Michael Douglas on a motorcycle. <laughs> we need Douglas. That's the only thing we that need can that get flow. him there. <laughs> we need that flow in Japan. We need we, we need to improve diplomatic relations with <laughs> Michael Douglas's perfectly smooth and non-xenophobic demeanor. Yeah, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but however, in Japan, the killer manages to escape. 
Uh, and the rest of the film is kind of them trying to track down this killer, and they get into some sort of uh, bromance, cop romance oh, yeah. type thing between uh, Michael Douglas's character and the uh, Japanese officer, uh, who is, is, is that uh, Ohashi? Oh, I thought it was... No, it's it's, it's Masahiro Matsumoto, who is played by Ken Takakura. Gotcha. Also known from the film The Yakuza back in the 70s. Oh, that's a great film. We're going to do that at some point. That's the the one that Schrader wrote, right? Yes. uh, I think the Schrader brothers wrote it, and Sidney Pollack ended up directing it, if Uh, I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I've definitely seen that one. That's a good one. We're going to definitely talk about that one at some point. Um, But yeah, so this film... Very uh, something. I'll yeah. say that. Much. <laughs> it's definitely uh, something. Yeah, this I'm, I'm is definitely not it. as good a movie as Basic Instinct is. Just no. to just to yeah. make no ambiguity <laughs> about that fact. This is not as good, but it's a really weird uh, spot in Ridley Scott's career too. Yeah, because it comes like you know Ridley Scott had a weird eighties. You know, like after Blade Runner, like he made what. I think Legend, uh, which is a thing, um, and then <laughs> uh, like an interesting low-key kind of film called Someone to Watch Over Me with uh, Tom Berenger playing a cop who's protecting Mimi Rogers who witnessed a murder and they fall in love and it's it's built around, uh, you know, uh, the song Someone to Watch Over Me is interpolated you know, throughout, uh, throughout the movie. It's an interesting little low-key film. It's like, you know, very like – kind of under the radar Ridley Scott film more definitely if you're doing a listicle called you know uh, five underrated Ridley Scott movies you know that's exactly what someone to watch over me is for and then Black Rain is kind of like an uh, like his second film in a row taking place in New York among like you know the NYPD and everything and there was um kind of a, a kind of an awkward process developing the script like it went through a whole bunch of different versions here's 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 what i heard okay cut me off right there yeah (laughs) i was gonna say here's the thing i heard about this and you can tell me if you've heard this as well and and i'm gonna be honest because i think i like this film a little bit less than you two do and i think that this is gonna be a huge reason i I did not know this until i researched this because i was like why does this feel to crash my whole world yeah no because because it it kind of blew my mind because i was like holy shit i was right now this this thing might also be what makes the movie work for other people so i'm not saying it's you know makes it objectively bad right but i was sitting here watching this movie and being like this is a really stylish um you know actioner um and it's got a real mood to it the you know i I actually think the performances are quite good i like andy garcia in it as well and uh i think michael douglas is fine um but i was weirded out every time this tried to swing into a sentimental uh like lethal weapon type situation where the two cops are gonna come together they're gonna Mm. be the best of japan and the best of america and they're gonna save the day and every time it switched tonally into those scenes i was like why are you doing this every time? I was like, just cut that half hour out and I would probably love this movie. And I went and I looked up this draft of this script was supposed to be for Beverly Hills cop two. That was the plot. 
The the plot of this movie Whoa. was initially designed for Beverly Hills Cop 2. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I had not heard that. What is your if you don't mind my asking, what was your source for that? Well, Annika? you know what? Not, I'm not I'm not like trying to call you on this. <laughs> I, just, I literally have never heard this before. No, I I honestly just saw it on like a random trivia thing. I guess I could look up where they got it from. Uh, so someone take the reins while I do some research on that. But I was like, when I saw that, I was like, that actually makes a whole lot of sense all of a sudden. Uh, so I'm going <laughs> to. Well, because that, I mean, it is, whether or not that's literally true, I'll like bail, you know, bail out whoever supplied that anecdote. If it's not literally true, it is kind of poetically true. Because there was that, there was that whole cycle in the eighties of like mismatched buddy cops was a thing, you know, for, almost the entire decade starting with like uh 48 hours kind of you know like inaugurated the period and you know th there were several other iterations you know beverly hills cop beverly hills cop 2 um uh running scared with billy crystal and gregory hines you know like uh, you know it was something that you know like it worked once so they just did it over and over and over again and i do agree that that is probably the weakest part of the movie because there's a lot of these very long scenes of banter between Michael Douglas and Ken Takakura where they're like, you know, cause Michael Douglas is a racist shithead oh, yeah. and, and, and Ken Takakura is a total tight ass. And those things are sort of like, and you know, and being the American cop, Michael Douglas is very, you know, like, he doesn't play by the rules. He's a maverick. He you know, flies by the sick of his pants. He goes by his gut, not the book. You know, that whole yeah. kind of shit. Which, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, like, there were some appalling police practices that were given, like, such enthusiastic endorsement by Hollywood that entire decade. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's like the conflict of, you know, doesn't go by the book and doesn't go by his gut. And, you know, ultimately they, they managed to find, you know, common you know of course you know through their shared love of and devotion to justice but i mean it's difficult and the conflict the easy conflict of them being mismatched cops does you know it's a source of a lot of you know kind of cheap and easy uh you know dramatic tension over the course of the movie um but i mean i do agree that the you know like the bonding scenes they kind of take it a little bit too far because it would have been a like a, a more interesting movie if you know, because what initially happens, you know, to get into spoiler territory here is that Go for it. Michael Michael Douglas doesn't, you know, have any, you know, he's like these, you know, I don't, I don't even want to, but, you know, it's like he's the, you know, like the one white guy and all these, you know, like Japanese guys, you know, fuck that shit. You know, like I'm white, you know, this is bullshit. Um, and he just doesn't want anything to do with any of them. They want the, he wants them to just like, you know, snap to and like obey his authority, even though he's, you know, like a foreign, you know, like just a, a foreign asshole. Well, yeah, dude, he's got, and, he, he's and, got some drag racing to do to uh, Greg Allman, right? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm going to be and honest. The initial well, bond between <laughs> is, you know, Andy Garcia uh, bonds with Ken Takakura initially. Because Andy Garcia is this, like, you know, kind of stylish, young, fun-loving guy who's, like, you know, friendly with everybody. Like, you know, he's Mr. Smooth, Mr. Slick. I'll be honest, you know? I was really sad when Andy Garcia gets wiped out partway through this movie. Like, 
yeah, it, it yeah. does kind it's, of uh, you know show it. It, it you kind of know that it's about to happen, but um, it, it does. Oh, it's a very slow, like yeah, inevitable it's a slow thing. build yeah. to it, right? And then, but once it, it you because they really rub Michael Douglas's face in it just to be gratuitous about it. They're like, yeah. we're gonna kill your partner right in front of you, and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, it's you know. Yeah, and it, they look. It, right, it was, I love that shot with the uh, the sword against the asphalt, and the like mm-hmm. right oh, before he's sparks, about to yeah. decapitate him. It's it's pretty pretty cool in a sense of uh, the style. Obviously, I didn't want Garcia to get his head cut <laughs> off, but but yeah, but but you know, as far as like you know, just to you know, just uh, tie up the whole like you know uh, mismatch buddy cops thing. You know, after Andy Garcia gets killed, they then have Michael Douglas start from scratch. And do the buddy cop thing with with Ken Takakura at that point, which is sort of like you know we don't need this. I mean, I do agree that that is a, a you know a, um, a a debit in the movie. That I mean, they could have saved a lot of time. Just you know, all right, look, out of professional obligation, this guy killed a cop. Let's go fuck him up. You know, they didn't need to do all of the you know like bonding shit that they did. Although, having said that. Michael Douglas and Ken Takakura do play those scenes very well. I mean, the MVP in terms of performance in this movie is Ken Takakura is fucking amazing in this movie. Yeah, um, sure. and, you know, and he has a difficult role because he has to play an uncool tight ass and yet still be, you know, somebody who the audience recognizes as a good guy and they like him. And he just like projects this just like rectitude and humanity that, you know, like you, you just you can't help but respect and eventually have affection for him over the course of the movie because he's you know he's just so good in it right because sure. i mean for the majority yeah. of the film he's that cop that you would want a cop to be well, he, uh, yeah yeah not i know like douglas yeah, you yeah, know yeah. yeah yeah which which when you're watching the cool cop yeah the guy douglas who rides a motorcycle the and yeah the cycle you know? yeah you know he's yeah, the greatest he's a, of the uh, 80s here. by the way he's holding them back hearing <laughs> racial slurs at people yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. Speaking of you know all these bonding scenes, there there's one scene that I that I did actually feel a little bit that I enjoyed. Uh, the one where I forget what what starts this up, but the one where Michael Douglas just starts like breaking the room apart to like this to what would eventually become like the very what we now know as the Hans Zimmer. Uh, like propulsive uh, scoring moment and he just starts like breaking apart like desks and bookcases. Is this the Yakuza club that he's at? That where they No, I think he's Yeah, they've gone back apartment. ostensibly to look for clues and then Douglas starts just throwing a tantrum and destroying everything in the room. Yeah. <laughs> is it, and it's yeah. out of frustration I, I'm assuming, right? It's because he yeah. can't find anything and it's not going his way so obviously this yeah. is how his character reacts Yeah, in a com- t- completely impulsive manner and yeah. aggressive. And that the, the Zimmer score just really kind Kind of sweeps you up into Douglas's state of mind in that. In that, I love Zimmer's score in this <laughs> fucking movie. Oh yeah, he just took advantage. Because it was like, he was like I got this trashy. Yeah, I got this trashy '80s action movie. I'm going nuts with the. He's got like high pitched electric guitars in, oh, during yeah. the fight scene at the end, which we'll oh, look yeah, yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah. It's great. It was before. It was before he learned restraint with those like <laughs> understated Christopher Nolan scores and shit. 100%. Yeah, he was just like, he was like, it's the '80s, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Sniffed the line and wrote a even. Riff. The audience is on cocaine. Yeah, like, come on. Yeah, yeah. Like, you gotta rev it up. <laughs> and yeah, well, I'll say the, I'll say the, the way that Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say the best thing for me that this movie does have going for it is the is the the style of it. Yes. Um, even even yeah, in well, absolutely. uh yeah. uh because obviously Jan's cinema, him, think, cinematography honestly. 
is is excellent and just just the fact that they were able to go to Japanese locations that obviously look amazing. Yeah, you could yeah. feel like Ridley. I I haven't seen the two films he did between this and Blade Runner, but you can feel like Ridley was looking. He was like, I want a really interesting locale that expresses something about my 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 characters and the situation that they're in and i'm not sure danny because you've seen the other two was, was that right. lacking in something like the the previous one you said took place in new york he it, it was a much more restrained uh type film it was much more of like an interiors uh kind of thing like it was it was a lot like rain back because he was i think I mean, I'm not sure exactly what was going through his head, but as best as I can surmise watching like the progression of these movies, um, you see him, you know, after that one, two of Alien and Blade Runner, which still kind of defines his career because it's still his career's peak, you know, right there at the beginning. Um, he wanted I, it, you can see him trying to prove that he's not a one trick pony and like, you know, trying other shit. You know, like going in some someone uh, something to watch over me is almost like I mean, as compared to the rest of his uh, filmography, it's like something you'd see on TCM. Like it's very like restrained and all of like you know these uh, interiors of uh, luxurious Manhattan apartment buildings and stuff. Like I mean, and it's um, very consumed with Mimi Rogers's confinement and all of uh, in in these. The, you know, interiors. Um, and what what you see in Black Rain is in a couple senses, but in the one that you just mentioned, you know, like all of those great, you know, like Osaka nighttime, just like landscapes. It was like you see Ridley Scott like at home, just like, oh, yeah. Yeah, this is sort of like Blade Runner, except we didn't <laughs> yeah. have to build this set. It's just <laughs> like this here. You know, they built this this whole city. This is, yeah, this is the good shit, man. Yeah, let's, <laughs> yeah. let's have a couple really cool nighttime shots of Osaka. Yeah, Jan, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, Blade Runner was fun, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. man, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and it's, there's all of those where it's like, you know, just those those great nighttime shots of Osaka where you're just like, oh, yeah, you know, Ridley watched those dailies and he was like, oh, I'm the best, ain't I? You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Look at that neon. And, yeah. Oh, that ne- oh, neon's the best shit, man. Yeah. <laughs> Colors. Uh, but there was there was another there was another great uh, kind of Blade Runner throwback, which is you know uh, after my, in the scene we were just talking about where Michael Douglas you know tears apart that like Yakuza locker room or whatever the fuck it is, um, and at the end of it he finds the clue that he's looking for in kind of a Blade Runner throwback. You know, it's like when Deckard finds the scale of the snake at that one crime scene, it's, you know, Nick Conklin finds that sequin of the, I guess, um, like B girl at, uh, Kim, uh, Kate Capshaw's, uh, bar, oh, right, uh, right. Who, it, who they then are like, Oh yeah, that girl who witnessed the murder, you know, she sort of caught up in it. And through finding that sequin, they make the connection to her and then they start following her and like, you know, getting to the bottom of the thing. But it was just, it was interesting to me to see that linkage with, you know with blade runner you know it's like it's like oh yeah like you know like one tiny thing that you would totally miss in a you know a hazy room our 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 grim police hero uh finds the clue and follows the clue because that's the job um but yeah i mean the, the the only thing really and it does to the degree that it succeeds uh, it, it, the thing that it's uh, that successfully elevates it above, like you know, just run of the mill, uh, you know, boilerplate '80s cop movies, 
and 80s buddy cop movies is that tone and the visual sophistication and style that Ridley Scott brings to it just innately by being Ridley Scott. Yeah. Um, if, if there's any dude who can just elevate material just by like, you know, you viewing it through what, how he sees it, <laughs> Ridley Scott's one of those dudes. Well, it's like the, uh, the motorcycle chase at, at the end, the big mm-hmm. finale. Like, you know, I've seen, we saw one in uh, Rambo, which was actually very good. I yeah. like that motorcycle uh, chase. But with this one, you can tell, I mean, you can tell it's Ridley because he's got crane shots, you know, <laughs> over the field and stuff. Everything is so oh, yeah. big and large. Even in big the budget. shot where the, the mud spatters the camera lens. Just oh, yeah. Right. yeah. Awesome. During the fight, I yeah. loved that. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> And it's really interesting when you're just talking about like Ridley Scott tourism, like the transition between the big shootout when Sato, um, you know, because there's the whole uh, ceremony where uh, the, the Yakuza gang war is finally being settled and uh, Sato, the villain, is being properly inducted into the proper Yakuza. Mm-hmm. Um, but he betrays them and he kills all of the establishment Yakuza guys and he and his splinter group. Um, are just like running around, like blowing shit up and uh, machine gunning people. That whole sequence is very generic. Like that sequence does not like it, it has very few hallmarks of, OK, this is something that Ridley Scott as an artist spent time doing. I mean, it feels almost as though large parts of the gunfight were turned over to the second unit. But then the transition into that motorcycle chase, which you both you know, like <laughs> yeah. noted as well, is very Ridley. And you can tell that he was more engaged in the drama of, okay, all of the bullshit is out of the way. And now we're down to a very, in a very elemental sense, the hero is pursuing the villain. We've established that the hero is a motorcyclist and a good one. And there's the, you know, the, the chase where he like, you know, hunts down his quarry and, you know, gets him. And then they have their um, hand-to-hand combat where once again, as they did earlier in the movie, when it comes right down to it, you know, Michael Douglas is able to subdue him and we've been expecting him to kill uh, Sato in revenge for having killed in Garcia, but he learns from Masahiro Matsumoto and, you know, like the, the upright, the, the right thing to do is to bring him in and, you know, cause I and, love that hard cut. Yeah. I love, I love that. <laughs> oh hard yeah. Cut so it's, much. It's great. <laughs> He's like, I'm arresting you. And then all the cops are like, Whoa, that loudmouth white asshole actually did something good. Holy shit. Like, that's the thing. It's, you know, like, you know, Michael Douglas thinks, yeah, they're in awe of me because I caught Sato. And they're just like, holy shit. So just shifting from that into the reason why I included this movie as part of a double feature of Sleaze is that uh, Michael Douglas's character in this, Nick Conklin, is I think even more morally compromised than Nick Curran in Basic Instinct, which, you know, you think, holy shit, he's more fucked up than the character <laughs> in Basic Instinct. Because yeah. his character in Basic Instinct, he was essentially, as you know, Gene Triplehorn tells him at one point, it's like, you're a good cop. And to the extent that he's like an investigator who's able to like follow clues and put things together and he's like tenaciously pursues the process and he has an interest in seeing justice done, it is true. He is, I mean, he's a good cop who's got a serious drug and penis problem, but, you know, (laughs) he is a good cop. Nick Conklin is a really dirty cop in Black Rain. You know, it's like we're introduced to him like on like his answering machine. It's just like, all right, IA's got you and they're going to fuck you. And it's just like, it's, you know, it's just, it's a, like, it's a given at the beginning of the, at the very beginning of the movie that he's about to not be a cop anymore. 
because he's done he's broken all these rules and it's like and it's it's one of the rare instances that you see in a movie in this era of the maverick cop who doesn't play by the rules and goes by his gut getting some comeuppance for his actions because it's like you know he he and some other cops uh skimmed a bunch of money off of this drug dealer that they busted which you know as tempting as it might be is still a no-no and if you you know do that kind of thing you know it's you you gotta face some consequences for it Mm. and it's when they send him over to japan to escort sato back to hand over to the osaka police um this is kind of like might be his last act as a as a police officer and it's like until the very end of the movie we're not really shown a side of michael douglas's character that shows that he in any way actually is a good cop i mean he's so like all he really recognizes in terms of like moral authority is his own for lack of a better term base instincts you know that you know he his own personal sense of what constitutes right and wrong and what makes a good and a bad cop is what he goes by rather than any like established moral standard like he doesn't see anything wrong with stealing if he's stealing from a bad guy but it's like you can't steal shit you know i mean it's just yeah. and he also right. i mean he physically harms them too yeah, and it, yeah, because he, because he, yeah, he be, he beats the dude on the on the the plane. Even yeah, though, punches him right in the face. Yeah, even just though, because he's annoyed by him, just because he's yeah. annoyed by him, it's not to defend himself at all. He yeah, just yeah. clocks him in the fucking jaw because he doesn't like the way he's looking at him. It's also not like he's particularly angry at him either for like what he's done that he just yeah. like straight no, up it's a brutally power. murdered a dude. Yeah, yeah he just doesn't. Yeah, he just does it to wave his dick in his face. Yeah, yeah. It's like I'm a cop. Michael Douglas waving his dick around in these in these movies. Yeah, I mean that's the defining. That's the link. You know, the linkage is Michael Douglas's erect dick. You know, (laughs) in a real sense. Yeah, do you know what? I actually got so... Michael Douglas dick double feature here. <laughs> I got so into this double feature, I actually added a third Michael Douglas movie to it, The Game by David Fincher, because oh, I, I owned it, and I've been that. meaning to rewatch it. He also plays a guy named Nick Are in you that movie. Me? I'm not kidding <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, he's on yeah, purpose. Yeah. This is, this is I, a conspiracy. I, I did a, a trilogy of Michael Douglas plays Nick. shitty Nicks. The Nick trilogy. <laughs> oh, man. We got to coin that. Nick trilogy. <laughs> And, uh, and and the thing about this character in the game, just, you know, like, I mean, why, why not just make it a triple feature and, you know, add the game in there is that oh, like the his so oh. his moral turpitude and compromise in that one takes the it's a, in, in an interesting twist. It's that he's an unprincipled capitalist, yeah. you know, because in both, you know, Black Rain and Basic Instinct, he's playing cops, you know, working, you know, class. I don't know, proletarians of a sort, you know, it's like definitely not somebody, definitely somebody who's labor rather than management. Mm-hmm. And then in the game, he's just the avatar soulless capitalism. And the whole point of the game is to kind of like shake him up out of that and like loosen him, loosen him up and kind of reconnect him with his own humanity through visceral fear is yeah. how he like relinks to his own human and moral, you know, sense. But yeah, and there's, I mean, there's, there's a running through it, too, that there's there's some sort of trauma, like obviously a trauma in his past with his father that's led him to right. just kind of, you know, want to just kind of sleepwalk through these these basic things, uh, not realizing any of the damages that he's doing and not realizing any of the <laughs> uh, 
uh, interestingly enough, one of the first scenes with him in the game is him. He's he's just not acknowledging his uh, his maid who's working in his house while he's eating a meal that she just made for him. And yeah. he's got he's got this great bit where he's got his tie over his shoulder so he doesn't get this tie in his food. And like that's his day. That's all he cares about. He's just like my tie's not getting messy. Uh, <laughs> the people who do shit for me, I'm not gonna thank them. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I, and yeah. I'm gonna go to work. And, I, and I'm going to feel empty and that's what life is. Uh, and then a whole game ensues that uh, leads him through a life shattering experience to wake him out of that. And again, Michael Douglas, he does feel like kind of a king of these sort of like unsympathetic. Yeah. Uh, I've never seen it's kind of nice the, the dark side of the white American man kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it's, it's this whole cycle of films that he did that where he's like, consistently exploring the just the the weaknesses and the moral rot of white american men and i and i can't i can't imagine other actors in a lot of these roles because again he's so just inherently deeply unlikable there's something about his face and the way that he speaks to people that yeah. i'm just like just cold. well there's something i mean if you go through and like you know you find like a, de, a like a defining link between michael douglas's roles and his work as an actor his ability to just completely throw himself into material is probably that thing because i mean unrelated to any of these roles that we've been talking about one really exceptional piece of work that he did was in behind the candelabra the steven soderbergh HBO movie that Liberace. I need to see that. He is astonishing as Liberace in that movie. And it's because he just jumps into the fucking deep end and he's like, all right, I trust you. You know, like, let's go. Let's do this. You know, like he doesn't hold anything back. He throws everything into it. And it's like you forget that it's Michael Douglas for a while because he's just like when he's when he's focused and when he's locked in. I mean, his ability to completely immerse himself in the role and in the milieu of the movie is really kind of admirable and it leads to all of these things just to you know bring it back to black rain where um you know his complete immersion in the role allows you to read all kinds of you know like different facets of the you know the character and what the implications of his character's actions and it makes for like really you know fascinating expressive work because i mean the degree to which he's like you know you know, making rational choices and this stems from that's like, I don't know how rational one can be when so fully immersed in the work as this. But I mean, like watching the, the way that he just regards justice as an entirely personal thing that nobody else's concerns are of any validity whatsoever other than his own sense of what's right and what's wrong and why the fuck should these Japanese people be allowed to speak Japanese in Japan <laughs> I'm American I'm American I want you to speak fucking English so I know what's going on because I'm the center of the universe maybe if I talk louder you'll understand me like that kind of shit oh and that kind of horseshit yeah but the thing and the, it's so great how like the movie where it could very easily like lapse into you know because I mean American portrayals of, you know, Asian characters in movies, I mean, you know, like they're just you know, like horrific versions of them over the years. But, you know, as much as Black Rain could lapse into like really racist caricatures of the Japanese, it avoids doing that to kind of impressive degrees for a movie that came out, you know, 30 years ago. 
Um, because at all at all of these turns when he's just carrying on like a total fucking asshole, like you see Ohashi, the commanding, you know, the the head cop who is yeah. you know Ma, uh, Ma, uh, Matsumoto's boss. Yeah, they're very professional uh, in comparison to him. It's like when Michael Douglas is like you know yelling at everybody and cursing at them and calling them racial slurs and shit. Ohashi is just basically very calmly talking to all of his guys and being like, you know, delegating like, okay, you do this and do that because you got it. You know, these are essential parts of the investigative process and you do this and that and the other, you get me a cup of tea and so and so and Matsumoto, you know, get the guy gene out of my fucking hair, you know, <laughs> and then he switches to English and, you know, like very, you know, like pointedly and very, you know, just like briefly and bluntly, just basically, it, it with exquisite politeness tells Michael Douglas to fuck off, <laughs> you know, because he's like, you're an asshole and I'm a professional and, you know, we're in my country. So shut the fuck up, you know? Well, see, and what I, what I, what I do like about where this movie eventually does go to is, um, cause obviously you're, you've made a good distinction, I think, between Michael Douglas's character as a dude kind of outside of the professional system of, policing a guy who doesn't really fit into it and uh you know for for good reason if, if anything it presents the professional version as the good version and him yeah. as the shittier version of this i think that's oh, why yeah. i like the movie because yeah, and, it, it definitely does that it it does you know question yeah. his character. a worse a worse movie would have held him up as the good guy and yeah. expect and, and done like you know, like racist bullshit to get you to laugh at the Japanese yeah, guys. Exactly. But yeah. this doesn't, it, this does not do that. <laughs> yeah. But what very it, easily. <laughs> you've seen it in so many eighties movies. That's what they mm -hmm. always would do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but where, where he eventually takes this is he's just like, okay, I can't work in the system that they want me to. And he kind of goes into just a straight up, revenge picture mode which is obviously incited by andy garcia's death especially right. where it gets more personal for him uh and right. you get you get more sympathetic to his quest in general yeah you start you're more on board at least yeah yeah what but what's interesting is that it, it doesn't distinguish it as like more accomplished or mm -hmm. or better if anything this is when the the effects kick in and it gets a little bit messier and grosser yeah. and it's where it gets a little you know i, I mean i guess he he does it and they, they congratulate him on doing it, but at a huge cost. <laughs> yeah. You know, he got his own oh, friend killed. Uh, and it's just like, you know, so it's, it's, it's a really interesting case of he kind of finds a mirror image of himself in this overly violent dude of the Yakuza who seems to be misbehaving even in the violent history of the Yakuza <laughs> and going oh, a little yeah. bit far. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, all of the establishment Yakuza guys are like, this guy's a loose cannon. He doesn't care about anything, man. He's no good. We want to have him clipped. You know, I mean, it's like we do not endorse this individual's activities. And you're right. It is a very interesting parallel between Sato and Conklin in this because they are sort of to each other's respective milieus what they, you know, they, they, they each. Yeah, they are reflections of, of each other. Um and the the irony of that, you know, like Michael Douglas going off the reservation at the end of the, you know, like in the last stretch of the movie, is that when he finally has a, you know, when he finally orients his moral compass toward doing the more like objectively right thing and stopping just, you know, it's through pursuing his ends in the most selfish ways that he has over the course of the movie and the least you know, institutionally, you know, permit, permissible ways, it, you know, it's like, 
in abandoning the law entirely is how he gets, uh, uh, you know, finally the sense of morality and of ethics. And, you know, he absconds with the counterfeit plates because the whole thing just we haven't mentioned this yet, but the whole kind of plot hinges on these like super good uh, 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 plates for counterfeiting money. Yeah. Um, and at, by the end of the movie, Michael Douglas has absconded with, you know, the two plates that you need to do the front and the back of the bill. And there's nothing really stopping him from just keeping them for himself or like, you know, selling them to, you know, like the highest bidder or something. Right. But, you know, for reasons that maybe he can't even articulate, he gives them back to Matsumoto at the end. You know, and Matsumoto's like, "Wow, I did," and that that look on his face, it like is is, is unmistakable. He's like, "Holy shit, I did not expect you to do this. I did not expect you to do the right thing here." You know, and it's again, it's not because he's you know uh, like undergone any kind of conscious moral transformation. It's because he personally likes this cop <laughs> yeah. who follows the rules. I felt that too, and, yeah. and it's because of his personal friendship with that guy that he does the right thing rather than having any kind of moral and ethical awakening. So it does leave him off at the end of the movie as in a way, just as big a piece of shit (laughs) as it was at the beginning of the movie, except that IA is a little bit more successful about it. Yeah. Yeah. Internal affairs won't be breathing down the back of his neck. It's kind of like he got away with it. (laughs) Rather than growing up and everything. Yeah. 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 That 80s thumbs up. Yeah. Oh (laughs) yeah, yeah. Yeah. That little, that little, soundtrack going there too oh man good stuff Hold it uh, anyway i think we're going to be entering the reductive rating round uh on this one black rain for me it's going to get a high one but i'm going to be giving it a, a three um for me i i i you know talking to you both about it i think i i think i like a little bit more even mm-hmm. um i do like douglas and i i do like uh what danny was talking about with the the sort of uh this, this lack of character development in an interesting way. Yeah. Uh, and I, I liked seeing him in the mirror image of, of, of Sado. Um, and I think this is, this is stylish and it's well-performed. Uh, I, I did just very much feel that this was a really good moody actioner that was padded out by a lot of Hollywood conventional stuff that really does feel weird in this particular movie. Since I don't think Scott is necessarily trying to make a conventional film. And I don't think uh, Jan, the cinematographer, is trying to make a conventional film. And I don't think any of the performers are either. So these weird moments that keep coming up every little while that just feel like they belong in a, you know, in a a Mel Gibson movie just threw me for a loop a little bit. (laughs) Uh, But for you, Jamie. Um, I'm actually, I'm going to give it a four out of Mm -hmm. five. I really liked it. Uh, I do think basic instinct is much better. Let just put that on the record. Um, but interesting note, actually, just before you continue, Verhoeven almost directed Black Rain and what a movie that would have been. Yeah, that would have been. Yeah. Apparently Verhoeven was briefly attached and he just would have been more violent. (laughs) Yeah. After Robocop came out and then he dropped it to go do Total Recall instead, but he wanted to work with Michael Douglas. So thus basic instinct happened oh that's interesting wow that's crazy so anyway. uh, yet another way in which this is all tied together yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, i imagine paul verhoven's a black rain would have been like we need more fucking racism <laughs> 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 the fucking racism in this movie you know 
Yeah. More heads coming off. Like, yes, come on. We need decapitations. We need racism. We need put put you penetration. Have, like, a four oh, motorcycle cross with the decapitations. Yeah, like. <laughs> oh, anyway, keep going, buddy. Yeah, but, um, but I, it was like I didn't expect when I was watching it. I just couldn't really believe it was a Ridley Scott movie. I'm used to Ridley Scott being the. Uh, the big sci-fi guy a lot, you know, alien and all that, mm-hmm. but he's just got a larger than life kind of feel to his films. And mm-hmm. I didn't think he was going to do a, uh, more so down to earth kind of, uh, a bro cop movie kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the it was like a very dark and gritty and gross version of like what rush hour would become <laughs> or whatever. It was like, um, but, uh, yeah, I, I thought Douglas, uh, I, he's just so good at playing a dick that I don't hate. Like, he, <laughs> like I, I mean, as a person, you know, yeah. his personality traits, he's a terrible person, but I just, I'm entertained constantly by his, uh, his dickishness. Um, I, I really enjoyed the, uh, the, the, uh, unfortunately short bromance we got with Andy Garcia and, yeah. and him, uh, and then oh, the, pre, the preceding relationship with, uh, Matsu. <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought, I thought it was really good. It was like a high budget, trashy action movie you know it was like with the like what i said earlier with the high cranes over the motorcycle scene and stuff it was just like a a more larger than life trashy film and i thought that that was cool so yeah i'm gonna give it a four all right and you danny i'm actually gonna split the difference between both of y'all and give it a three and a half out of five um because this is a movie that i have a lot of sentimental attachment to i think i saw this one in theater too or if i didn't see it in the theater i saw it on uh on TV or VHS very shortly thereafter. So it's one that, I mean, it's been with me for a very long time and I've rewatched it, uh, you know, many, many times over the years. Um, it's one where it's like, it's hard for me to separate my affection for it with its actual quality. But, um, through, you know, like having seen it as many times as I have, I mean, it, it realistically, it is, you know, a mixed bag. You know, it's like it's, <laughs> it, it, yeah. I mean, like its assets are the mood because the mood is wonderful, uh, established through the cinematography, the music, the direction. Uh, the performances are vivid and nuanced to a degree that they aren't usually in uh, formula cop movies. Um, but its its weaknesses are the ones where it's sort of excessively beholden to the era that it was produced in, which is Mm -hmm. that it's got to have all these 80s cop movie tropes. And it's kind of, you know, like the script, I feel like is the, is the, the pretext that's unavoidable to explore all of the things that, uh, that Ridley Scott and the cast, you know, try to explore in it because they're all like, you know, the director, is making an interesting movie. The cast is acting in an interesting movie. Everybody who's working on it is working on this movie that is of a higher quality and a lot more distinguished in every way than the movie as it exists on the page. Because, I mean, I read uh, one of the final scripts. I don't know whether it was the shooting script or whether it was a draft or two before that. It does not read interestingly at all. Like it's it's just a pro it's a pro forma cop movie on the page, um, with that you makes know, a lot of sense. Yeah, when you look the at setting, it, uh... yeah, and it's also when it, it it went through zillions of drafts. Like I think like bef- it originated as something even more kind of anodyne and bullshit than it ultimately 
Because I mean, the thing is, it, it's it, like it's like you guys are saying. It's like it's a stylish genre piece in the end, the final result. Um, but the thing about so many genre films, this is something that's true historically, going back to the beginning of the medium, really, is that there are you know like the the recognizable framework of the is constructed from the tropes of the genre that allow the producers and the money men, the people who are financing it to recognize it as a worthy investment to give the creatives the money to go off and explore their own preoccupations. But that it's like part of the compromise is we need, you know, some, some of this kind of, you know, bullshit that like, you know, the, the average Joe will be like, Oh, it's one of these kind of movies. All oh, right. Oh, okay. <laughs> Oh, he's a cop. He he plays by the, he doesn't play by the rules. All right, <laughs> all right. It's one of these movies. All right, okay. All right, all right. I'm with you. I'm with you. You know. Yeah. And then no, you know totally. it's like you get you get on board early with that, and then you go for you know, like a nice stylish ride. But you know it's just it's you know the game is the game. It's the way that it's always been, and that's just it's what what I really feel like you know you do when you're you know exploring and luxuriating in genre film. You just you have to stay cognizant that, you know, there are rules to the shit. Yeah. And, you know, and occasionally they're more, you know, like the, uh, you know, like the, the the kind of mundane realities intrude more often than they do otherwise. And sometimes you do, get something. Do you know what, like Danny? This is unacceptable. Yeah. Every movie should be RoboCop. There should be no compromise. Like, you know. Like sometimes you get, you know, perfection like Robocop or Basic Instinct <laughs> or Total Recall, where it's like you have a clear genre piece that's just perfect in every way. But, <laughs> you know, you like not everything can be Robocop, you know? And I mean, you, I, I don't I accept put that, that on reality. A, I don't. <laughs> no, no. Well, you see, Josh, I'm older than you are. That's the thing. Okay. I'm, I'm more hard bitten than cynical. I'm, I'm, I'm George I'm gonna, Basic Instinct, and you're Michael Douglas. I'm working that's, as that's an activist. I'm and I'm yeah. going to make every film RoboCop. <laughs> every single well, one. Well, I, I'm going to adopt George Zunza and Basic Instinct as my lifestyle guide and coach. I'm abandoning Sydney uh, <laughs> Street and the Maltese Falcon. I'm taking George Zunza and Basic Instinct as my new lifestyle guide. Well, yeah. I'm excited to read those tweets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All my posts are going to be about magna cum laude pussy now. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, I think that about does it for Black Rain. This has been your episode, your weekly episode of Sleezoids. Thanks so much, Danny, for... That was uh, a fun one. Yeah, bringing, bringing oh, these yeah. two films along great with kicking, you. It was great kicking it with you guys. This is a lot of fun. Because, I mean, I really like both of these movies, as, as you get, uh, have picked up some subtle indicators over the course of the podcast. Oh, absolutely. No, that, that honestly, that, that, <laughs> that big that's, old 69 out of 5 score. That's, that's, that's all we can hope for, oh, again, yeah. is that people bring, <laughs> bring stuff that's sleazy and stuff that they can make an argument for because they like it. Those are the only two things that we want. Um, hey! So thanks so much, man. Uh, if you've got anything to plug, this is your time to do it. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, sometime in the next couple of years, I'm going to be uh, going to have a film called In the Shade that I wrote and I'm going to direct and it's going to come out some point soon. So, you know, check your local theater listings for that one. But, you know, like, you know, don't hold your breath for like another 18 months or so. But, you know, that's 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 like long term. Uh, short term, I have a podcast called Minor Bows. 
um, mm-hmm. where I what's it, it's sort of taken a new turn recently. Basically, just me ranting into a microphone about stuff for about an hour now. Yeah, you, you just uh, did but, an episode on Uncharted, right? The Uncharted series. Ooh. Yep. My most my like most them? recent episode is uh, is a reflection and a rumination on the like literary qualities of the Uncharted games, which of which I'm very fond and which I uh, play. Excellent. I am too. So uh, and replay uh, quite a bit. Um. So yeah, that's that's basically what I got going yeah. on now. So I if have you guys want to of... hear more of Danny, which after, yeah. after this podcast, I can't imagine you wouldn't want to hear more of Danny. I would go over to Minor Bows and check out his podcast over there, uh, and we'll definitely keep our eyes peeled for a movie by Danny. What was uh, the name again of the film that you're in? The Shade, right? In the that shade. was it. In the shade. In yes. the shade. Well, I'm gonna give it a glowing review without watching it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. When it appears okay. on right Letterboxd. To Letterboxd. And right. I'm not gonna disclose that I know you. I'm just gonna be like, this is, this is. Uh, no, that's good. This is that's Robocop. Good. No, yeah. This is this is a Tarkovsky film. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Every single film critic I know is gonna be fully expected to uh, not disclose their conflict of interest and give it five stars <laughs> and talk about how it's the greatest film ever made. You know, yeah. uh, this is gonna work out fine. You, you don't even uh, need to ask Ask me. I'm just going to do it for yeah. fun. So <laughs> it's it, it, it's a good thing that we don't have any incriminating evidence of this conspiracy on recording. <laughs> nope. <That's right>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, power of editing too. Yeah. Someone's going to go back three years from now. They're going to come back to this podcast. They're going to be like, "Holy shit, bastard!" Yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, guys, yeah. thanks so much for listening to this episode of Sleezoids. Um. For uh v- for listeners. Uh, next week we are back with a patron exclusive bonus episode where we're going to be talking, as we mentioned, yeah. RoboCop, oh, yes. and we're going to be pairing it with you gotta. We're going to be pairing uh, it with Terminator. Terminator. Come on, come on. Uh, we're doing. We don't usually do two huge movies uh, on the show. We usually try to do one big one and one lesser known one, but. Uh, we couldn't think of anything for the Terminator that wasn't Terminator 2. Yeah, it worked too well. Uh, and we just talked Verhoeven, so why not do some more Verhoeven? And I, I will take any excuse to watch RoboCop because it's <laughs> literally one of my all-time favorite it's films. absolutely amazing. Uh, but for those of you who aren't patrons, we're going to be back in two weeks' time for you guys where we're going to be having on another special guest to talk Troll 2. Yeah. Paired with... Uh, the best worst movie, which is the documentary about the making of Troll Two, and I haven't seen either of these films, but Jamie seems excited. I've seen the documentary, <laughs> and it was really good, and I liked it. And then I've seen so many clips of Trolls Two, I might as well have seen the film. So uh, Fair I'm excited. I'm excited. Uh, so you guys have those to look forward to. Um, once again, if you guys are on iTunes already, and even if you're not, head on over to iTunes and give us a good old rating on there. Uh, as always. Uh, I'm Josh Lewis. You can find me on Twitter at, at the Josh L. And I'm Jamie Miller, uh, Jamie Miller, ACAS, A-C-A-S. And Danny, where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me at ByBows, uh, B-Y-B-O-W-E-S. Awesome. Uh, anyway, guys, thanks again so much for listening this week. Keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy, everybody. <laughs>